Good morning. Uh, if you want, uh, you can. Oh, get this down a little. You can follow along with me. I'm going to read from God's Word, Romans six, starting at verse fifteen. <clears throat> Here now, uh, God's Word. What then? Shall we sin, because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that through that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words. Um, thank you for this time to read them and reflect on them together. I pray that, uh, that my words will glorify you, that uh, the meditations of all our hearts will please you and enrich us for your work in the world. In Christ's name, amen. So, a politician was running for a prominent national office and uh, discovered that this photograph had been unearthed in a public archive. The inscription on the back, as you can see, reads, Remus Smith, horse thief, train robber, sent to Montana Territorial Prison, 1883, escaped 1887, robbed the Montana Flyer six times, caught by Pinkerton detectives, convicted, and hanged, 1889. Now, Remus Smith was this candidate's great-grandfather. And so his staff knew that this photo could be a problem, a politically damaging problem. And so his press secretary decided what we need to do is we need to release the story first so that we have the first opportunity uh, to tell the story and to interpret this family scandal the right way. And so the press secretary uh, produced the following press release and sent it to all the major news outlets. Candidate Smith's great-grandfather, Remus Smith, was a famous cowboy in the Montana Territory. His business empire grew to include acquisition of valuable equestrian assets and intimate dealings with the Montana Railroad. Beginning in 1883, he devoted several years of his life to government service, finally taking leave to resume his dealings with the railroad in 1887. In 1889, he was a key player in a vital investigation run by the renowned Pinkerton Detective Agency. Shortly thereafter, Remus passed away during an important civic function held in his honor when the platform upon which he was standing collapsed. <laughs> well, I, I wish it was true, but th the story is not true. It's just one of... <laughs> It's just one of those fun email forwards that you get every so often that turns out to be an urban legend. Um, but like all good legends, it points to something that certainly is true, and that's that political spin is a reality of our public life together. Uh, those leaders who are shaping the world all too often need to reinterpret facts in the most positive way. Uh, it's, it's a reality, and it's, it's necessary for survival, and it's, it's frankly part of their job. I had uh, 
uh, one of my former mentors told me that leaders define reality. And uh, in the political world, part of this defining reality is often called spin. And all too often, uh, these politicians are not only uh, reinterpreting, rede redefining facts that they have no control over, like Remus Smith, uh, but things that they say themselves. Uh, how many times a day do you or I say something that we don't really mean or that we'd rather not stand behind in public or that could easily be misinterpreted? And if you're a public leader, you just don't have that opportunity to shoot off the top of your head whatever happens to be in your mouth at any time without any consequence. If you do and you make such a gaffe, then you either have to denounce it and be called a flip-flopper, or you have to creatively recast it in the best light possible. So, political spin. Today, uh, with Advent behind us, we're going to pick back up our study of the Book of Romans. And one way to read this book is that it's Paul's own commentary, his own, maybe you could even say spin, on things that he's previously written. You may have noticed this distinctive characteristic in Romans, that it's peppered with a series of rhetorical questions. In 3.5, what should we say, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? In 3.31, do we overthrow the law by this faith? In 6.1, should we continue to sin that grace may abound? And today, here in 6.15, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? In 7.7, 7, what should we say that the law of God is sin? Largely, these rhetorical questions of Paul's are, are just his style. But also, it could be that, uh, that these questions arise... Um, out of things that critics have been saying about him. In, in fact, he says that explicitly in chapter 3, verse 8. He says that he's been slanderously charged with saying, why not do evil that good may come? And to each of these rhetorical questions throughout Romans, Paul gives an emphatic and resounding no. The Greek phrase, that, phrase that's used in each of these passages is, is uh, me genoito, uh, which is a, a phrase of extreme emphasis. It's certainly not, God forbid, or even hell no. Paul is adamant that these questions are a misrepresentation of his message. What you are suggesting is not what I meant, he seems to be saying. So we could ask, where are these voices of criticism coming from that Paul's responding to throughout Romans? Why might people, for example, be suggesting that Paul thinks that the law is sin or that people should do evil to bring about good? It's not hard to imagine that these voices that Paul quotes are ones responding to his letter to the Galatians. Um, in case you didn't know it, the New Testament is not uh, arranged in chronological order. It's uh, actually arranged, uh, the books of Paul are arranged basically from longest to shortest. And uh, so Galatians, uh, even though it comes 28 chapters after the book of Romans, most scholars uh, pretty much agree that Galatians was probably one of the first books written in the New Testament before any of the Gospels and certainly at least 10 years before the book of Romans, uh, probably in the early 50s A.D., 
Uh, and there's a great deal of overlap and theme between Galatians and Romans. And so many people do see Romans as a commentary, as Paul's own commentary on Galatians. So today, as we get back into studying Romans, I want to take a look together back at the book of Galatians and consider this idea of whether Paul is working in a spin zone. Galatians is an angry letter. Paul's own authority and credibility are under attack in Galatia, and he's ticked about that. But even more than that, Paul is ticked that the Galatian church, some of his first converts, appear to be leaving the gospel that Paul preached to them and abandoning it for some alternative gospel. And he's really ticked at those teachers that are leading the Galatians astray with this corrupt message. And in this letter to the Galatians, possibly aggravated by his anger, Paul says some provocative and even outrageous things. One of the topics that we're going to focus on today that probably stirs up the most controversy in this letter is the way that Paul treats the law. Today's text from Romans 6 opens with a brief phrase that echoes the controversial remarks in Galatians. Because we are not under the law. It's easy for us to uh, skip over that passage too quickly because it's so natural for us to agree with it. Of course, we're not under the law. Since Jesus died on the cross, we don't have to bring sacrifices to the altar anymore. But in Paul's day, that conclusion was not so obvious. Um, Most of the, the earliest Christians, all of the earliest Christians, Jesus' disciples, Paul, they were all Jews. And as Jews, uh, I'm sorry, their their confession that Jesus was the Messiah did not in any way change that identity. And as Jews, the idea of abandoning Torah or denying its authority to govern their lives was pretty much unthinkable. It would be like today if a a Christian pastor stood up and said um, that, guess what, we're no longer under Jesus. It would be that shocking and unthinkable of a message to a Jewish audience. And so it's pretty jarring to read Galatians, where Paul not only does that, but does it in an extreme fashion. So if you want to, you can, you can uh, flip to Galatians and skim through with me a couple, where I'll, I'll highlight a couple of the examples of things that Paul says about the law in this book. In uh, 3 verse 10, he says that all who rely on the law are under a curse, And in 3.19, he kind of even distances the law from God. He says that it was put in place by angels through a mediator. And he goes on to say that the law holds people captive until Christ came. In 3.23, Paul calls the law uh, pedagogos, a word that's that's usually translated teacher or guide guide or guardian. Uh, But this Greek word, emphasizes temporary authority that only applies to children. It's kind of like Paul is calling the law a babysitter or a nursemaid, an authority that's not necessarily necessary anymore once the child has grown up. And then in uh, chapter 4, 3 and 5, he suggests that the law is one of these 
elementary principles of the world that enslave the world and that God's Son redeems us from the tyranny of the law. The overarching depiction of the law in Galatians is of a slave master. Consider Galatians 5.1, a well-known refrain of triumph from this book. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Freedom from what? You read on. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. If you accept circumcision, in other words, if you follow the law, Christ will be of no advantage to you. In Galatians, the law is a slave master, and Christ sets us free from that slavery to the law. Now, let's compare that to Romans. Who's the slave master in Romans? Sin. Sin is the slave master in Romans. We can uh, look at at, uh, the last passage we looked at from chapter 6, starting in verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Down in verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Verse 14, sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. And uh, in today's passage, we read that... uh, Uh, Thanks be to God, though you used to be slaves to sin, and now we are slaves of righteousness. So in in Romans, before Christ came, we're enslaved by sin and not the law. So how does Paul characterize the law in Romans? If we continue reading a bit in in chapter 7, we read, uh, what shall we say, that the law is sin? Megenoito, hell no, by no means. The law is holy, verse 12, 7, 7, 12. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Megenoito, it was sin producing death through that which is good, i.e. the law. So, The law is not the slave slave master. Sin is the real tyrant. The law is just a neutral tool in the hands of sin. Or even better, uh, the law is a good tool that sin has corrupted. So here we go. Galatians, the law is a curse, a tyrant inflicted on us by angels, holds us hostage, confines us like helpless children, keeps us from enjoying the grace of God in Christ. Romans, the law is good. It's spiritual, it's a gift of God, and it only has been corrupted by sin, leading us to death. It's hard not to think that, at least on this issue of the law, that Paul is being a little bit of a spin doctor in Romans. Kind of like the politician that says, no, 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 when I said no new taxes, I meant that we wouldn't, I didn't mean that we wouldn't need to raise the taxes we already have. Paul seems to be saying, no, no, no. When I said this law is a slave master, what I really meant is that it is the tool of sin who is the real slave master. 
So, is Paul giving a little spin here in Romans? He had made some pretty outrageous comments in Galatians, and maybe to maintain his credibility as a faithful Jew, he did need to dial back his rhetoric a little bit in Romans and give a little nuance to his critiques of the law. So, some of you, probably like me, find this kind of observation interesting in and of itself. For me, there's a kind of intellectual curiosity that's satisfied in uncovering evidence of how the, the Bible has emerged as people like Paul have grown in their understanding of the gospel through uh, time and experience. And let me say that the idea of Paul doing a little political spin on his previous words does not shake my confidence in either Galatians or Romans or their authority. Even if Paul's mind completely changed throughout his ministry, and and I don't think it did, even if it did, I trust that God's mind did not change. And so that uh, God uses Paul's understanding of the gospel at different points in his life to reveal different truths to us. And that leads us to the question that some of the rest of you might be having, which, which is rightly so what? What difference does it make to us today that Paul put a spin on his presentation of the law when he wrote Romans? I think the answer is that Paul had different audiences with different problems and needs reading these letters. And in the same way, we have different audiences reading the Bible today. I myself am a different audience from one occasion to another. And on some days, I need Paul's Galatians spin on the law. On other days, maybe I need Paul's Romans spin. And to contrast those two different angles in these books, I'd like to consider two different purposes for the law and the different reasons why Paul says that uh, this law may be set aside. One purpose of the law is that served as a mark of distinctiveness for the people of God, for Israel. Observing the Sabbath, maintaining kosher eating and living habits, bringing sacrifices to the temple in Jerusalem, And most of all, the no turning back sign of circumcision. All of these things set apart the Jews from all other nations. The distinctive features that denoted Israel as something special. These were the physical outward signs of an inward truth. That these people are God's elect out of all the world. In submitting to Torah, then, Jews then and today were saying, God has chosen us and redeemed us, and in response, we commit to obeying God's word, even if it seems weird to you. Now, you may remember last week, Jason shared with us uh, from Isaiah, the end of Isaiah, that the Hebrew scriptures provide a vision that one day all people will be included among God's elect. The nations will stream to Israel and join Israel in worshiping the one true God. But it's one thing to acknowledge this theoretical hope for someday, the Gentiles being included. It's quite another to say, as Paul does, that day is here, today, right now. 
In Galatians 3, Paul says, In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. Through faith, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. So, if you're a Jew, and that day has come that the Gentiles are now included in God's covenant, what does that mean with respect to the law, to these distinctives that set us apart from the world? I would guess that many of the Jews in Paul's time hadn't really considered that question. But if, if you ask them, I would guess they would say, well, I suppose then someday the Gentiles will follow the Torah too. In Galatians, Paul suggests another possibility. Maybe in that day, no one will follow the Torah. Maybe we Jews don't need to follow the Torah either. Paul never comes right out and says that, but what he does say emphatically and unequivocally is that the law has no bearing whatsoever on making one righteous, on making one accepted by God. Paul seems to have been writing to a Galatian church that was marred by disunity on this, on this uh, topic. There were Jewish Christians who fully observed the law, the Sabbath, kosher eating, and especially circumcision. And then there were Gentile Christians who did not, and most importantly, were being compelled to do so by their Jewish brothers. They needed to, uh, to essentially become Jews if they wanted to be real Christians. Now, Paul wants to kick that idea to the dung heap in no uncertain terms. Uh, there are no star-bellied snitches in the kingdom of God. There are not two levels of Christians. We are one in Christ. We've been made free from the law as a means of righteousness and as a source of identity. Our righteousness and our identity comes from Christ now, not from the law. Here are the first verses of Galatians 5 in the message version. Christ has set us free to live a free life. So take your stand. Never let anyone put a harness of slavery on you. I am emphatic about this. The moment any one of you submits to circumcision or any other rule-keeping system, at that same moment, Christ's hard-won gift of freedom is squandered. I repeat my warning. The person who accepts the ways of circumcision trades all the advantages of the free life in Christ, the obligations of the slave life of the law. So what is the law for us? For first century Jews, Jewish Christians, the enslaving law, or rule-keeping system, as Peterson puts it, is circumcision, Sabbath, kosher, sacrificial cult. What are the distinctive religious features that set us apart? Protestant or Catholic or Orthodox? Reformed? or Arminian, playing a guitar, or an organ, or no music at all, being in a home church, or not, going on a service project, or not, having a regular quiet time, or not, 
tithing or not, doing Advent devotions, fasting for Lent, taking communion with juice or wine, crackers or bread, weekly, monthly, being baptized by immersion or sprinkling, having a liberal or a conservative interpretation of the Bible. For every one of these issues, there may or may not be a position that's closer to God's heart, but none of them, none of these works of the law are as close to God's heart as his son. And if we are united with Christ, then none of these things have any bearing on our own acceptance by God as his adopted children. Any one of these distinctives of religious practice should be set aside as a litmus test for whether or not I'm a true Christian. Any one of these works of the law must be set aside if it's leading me to a sense of superiority over my brothers and sisters in Christ. So in Galatians, Paul asks me to examine myself and see if there's any outward religiosity that's getting in the way of my relationship with God or with God's people. If so, then I'm enslaved by the law. And that law should be shaken off. Every one of those Christian works of law I listed are ultimately negotiable. But that's tricky when we turn to the second purpose of the law, which is uh, the first purpose was a means of identification of God's people. The second purpose is that it's a code of ethics for a community. It tells the people of God how they might live a God-shaped life. The code can be summarized in the phrase that I must love the Lord God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love my neighbors as myself. But then we get into the nitty-gritty details. There's more required in a code of ethics. So setting aside that purpose of the law is clearly problematic for any community trying to live together in holiness. The logical argument against Paul that people make after reading Galatians goes like this. The law is the way to live a God-shaped life. Paul says we should abandon the law. Therefore, Paul thinks we should not live a God-shaped life. Therefore, Paul thinks it's okay to live a life of sin. Of course, Paul's response to that, again, is megenoito. Hell no. He's pretty strong, on pretty strong ground, saying that this particular spin on his message is a misrepresentation. In Galatians 5, he says, Don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another. Let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. When you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under the obligation of the law of Moses. When you are directed by the Holy Spirit, you are not under obligation of the law of Moses. That's tricky to trust in. It's a lot easier when you have a set of black and white principles that you can check off and follow versus uh, listening to the Spirit and, and following in obedience. 
So you can call Paul a lot of things, but you can't call him soft on sin. Not in Galatians, and even more so not in Romans, where he emphasizes over and over and over that grace in Christ is not a license to sin. But if it's not the law that keeps us from sinning and keeps us from sin, what is it? I'm going to turn again to 3.16 from today's text. It's kind of a tricky verse. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. So so the alternative in this verse, the alternative to obeying sin, is obeying obedience. Obedience that leads to righteousness. So we obey obedience to become slaves of righteousness. It kind of seems maybe a little like Paul's just mincing words here. Like maybe, you know, he's saying, is this not just a different way of saying that, well, we kind of still are slaves to the law. The reason it's not is because I think the obedience there, that we obey obedience, it's not our own obedience that we're slaves to. We become slaves to Christ's righteousness, to Christ's obedience. Paul makes that clear throughout both Galatians and Romans, that our righteousness is worth nothing, that Christ's righteousness and obedience is what saves us. So remember the list of the works of law that I gave you earlier, tithing, Worshipping, communion, baptism, small groups, Bible study, service. These acts of law are good things. Some of them are things that we commit to when we agree to become a part of this new hope community. And neither Paul or I is saying that we shouldn't do these things. The question is one of what we're enslaved to. In Galatians, Paul reminds us not to be enslaved to these things, to doing these things, these acts of law as an end unto themselves. If we're faithful to doing these things for their own sake, we still end up in sin and we miss out in Christ. In Romans... Paul exhorts us to be united with Christ, a slave to his righteousness. And and if we do so, then the doing of the works of the law and avoiding sin will take care of itself. Now, the next chapter of Romans will remind us that that's so much easier said than done. But for now, we can rejoice together that in Christ it is done. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Freedom from the law, freedom from sin, freedom for grace in Christ. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for your servant Paul and for uh, the message that uh, that he brings to us and um, 
for the different things that you show us uh, as you revealed your gospel to him through years of ministry. And we pray that, uh, that we can each learn and apply unique truths, both from Galatians in abandoning the law and Romans in being united to you that we may not sin. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.